This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. I just wanted to take an opportunity to welcome Sozan Michael McCord back to Austin Zen Center, even though it's just zooming in and not in person. Michael started at San Francisco Zen Center in, was it 2008? Something like 2000, that. 2007, somewhere around there, yeah. And then uh, practiced at the city center for a number of years before coming to Tassajara. And I, we had a, I had the good fortune of uh, overlapping with Michael for maybe three years at Tassajara. And, um, and Michael stayed at Tassajara for a number of years and uh, went through a number of staff positions there before moving back to the San Francisco Zen Center City Center, where he ended up being a number of different things, program director and uh, the director, and is currently the chief financial officer of the San Francisco Zen Center. I don't remember when you were still, Michael, but I do remember having a conversation. I think Michael started at, at Tassajara when I was Shuso. And at one point, I think I said something like, I, I mentioned something about like, well, when you're Shuso, something or other, right? And uh, I think Michael, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but you were like, huh, Shuso? <laughs> and not too long afterwards, uh, Michael was invited to be Shuso by his teacher, who is also my teacher, Paul Haller. So um, we're very happy to have you, Michael, giving a Dharma talk with us. And welcome to our one-day retreat that we're having. Thank you, Michael. Well, good morning, everyone. It is really um, nice to be here. Um, I was last in Austin in January of 19. And um, I have practiced with Mako for a majority of my time um, um, in Soto Zen. And um, I have a real uh, affinity also for Texas, where I was born and went to college. So um, you all are doing a one-day sit, and we just had um, a joyous um, ceremony um, installing a new tanto. I practiced with um, Choro, Carla, um, back in 2011 at Tassajara. Um, so, um, and I also hear that today you're doing a one-day sit, and this is, the, this is the first day you're back in the temple. Is that right, Mako? With um, first uh, that we're doing, yeah. Okay, great. So that's that's lovely to have um, these things happening on this day, and there's a lot of activity that people undertook in order to make this day possible. Um, I mean, you think of everything that, that has happened in order for this ritual to take place, um, everything from the fundraising for the buildings, to people sewing robes, to the different rituals people learned, the different chants, lighting of candles, buying of altars, setting up zafus and zabutans. I mean, everything it takes to put this practice together, um, not to mention ceremonies like installing a tanto. Um, there's a lot of human activity that's taking place in order for um, us to be able to have a practice and to come here on a Saturday morning and to get together and to do something. And yet, someone could look at this from the outside and say, look at the demands of this world. I mean, it, there are so many things that we could be doing with our time this morning. And we could have been doing with our time. I mean, uh, social justice, climate change, a pandemic, news propaganda, political polarization, the Me Too movement, the homeless crisis, inequity in, um, in um, uh, economics and all the different things. There's so many things that we could be doing. If all of us put our, our effort together this morning, we made it, maybe could have already framed a house. We maybe could have planted a garden. Who knows all the things that we could have done with our time if we all got together and spent it in that way. We're spending it this way. And people might look at what we're doing and say, is Buddhism passive? 
I mean, the calls of the world are, are quite distinct right now in regard to needing individuals to dedicate their time and effort to making this a better place. And we're going to spend an entire day sitting and staring at a wall. That seems on some level like maybe we are being passive or not really meeting the moment of what's happening in the world. And all of the things, the details that we put our time into, orioki, that's pretty detailed. Sewing robes and rakasus, all the attention to detail that that takes. That's a lot of mental energy. That's a lot of human doing. And for what? Are we ignoring the times that we're living in? Is Buddhism a passive, self-absorbed, over-ritualized hobby? What I want to talk about this morning is how that Buddhism and our Soto Zen lineage at their core are designed to meet the suffering of the individual and the world. At its core, that is what it's designed to do. So we start with the Four Noble Truths. You might have heard of these, some of the most basic pieces of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths. And at the very root of everything that I just mentioned, that seems like the world is calling out for, for us to do something, at the very root of each of those things is suffering. Someone is suffering, some group is suffering, some way on the planet there is suffering. And the Buddha recognized that this is inherent to human existence is suffering. And that was the first noble truth. And then the cause of suffering, which is attachment and desire. And then that there is a letting go that can happen of suffering that leads to the cessation of suffering, which is what we would like to have happen to all the things that are causing people suffering on this planet. And then there is a path that leads to that letting go, to that cessation of suffering. I almost view it like a crossword puzzle where you have four across, and that is the four noble truths. And then on that, you know, in a crossword puzzle with the last letter, the letter going down, it starts with that letter and it ends with this letter going this way. So the four noble truths end with there is a path that leads to the letting go, that leads to the cessation of suffering. And then that path is like eight characters going down. And that is the eightfold path. And in that eightfold path, there is a thing called right action. But the eightfold path it's not something that is um, done in sequence. It's not like you do this, then you do that, then you do this, then we get to right action. And then um, all of a sudden, then we know how to act or we know how to respond. In fact, right action as it was written originally in the time of the Buddha was written as um, kind of a negative, like don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. And then you'll have right action. And so a lot of, um, um, folks since then have taken that and written it in many different ways in regard to positives or things to do. Um, but the Eightfold Path um, has in it um, so many different things that support um, us being able to know what to do. Now, I could go and join so many different causes. But would I be joining the right cause? Would I be joining it in the right way? would I be doing it in a way that was balanced for me and my life, where I could keep my head straight, where I could um, not be overly consumed with emotion? Could I be able to think in a way that was somewhat rational? There's all sorts of things that I could do, but how would I engage? How would I actually show up for that? So, this is what Buddhism has been, has been studying at its core since the beginning, is why do we suffer? Can we not suffer? Oh, we can. There's a way to not suffer. Okay, good. How do we not suffer? 
Well, here's a path. And the path is eightfold. And that path um, has in it things that arise um, simultaneously, if you will. There is right view, which is one of the primary places that we start with the Eightfold Path is right view. And we have right intention. Right action is in there, like we talked about, right livelihood, how we make our, our living. Right effort has to do a lot with how we um, use effort to look at what arises internally that might be keeping us um, from, go, from um, really moving forward with a right view or right action. Um, right mindfulness, paying attention to things as they arise with uh, cultivating a mindfulness um, practice. And right concentration, which supports being mindful. All these things make up the Eightfold Path. And every single one of them is designed around one thing, which is answering that last question of why do people suffer and can we not suffer? So we have the, the Four Noble Truths that talk about the basic inherent nature of being a human being on this planet with this body and with this mind, and it is that we, we have suffering. But there's a way that we can not suffer. And so we have this eightfold path of how we engage life so that we can actually let go of what it is that is causing us suffering. And in that eightfold path, we have right action. Now, usually that's what we as human beings want to do is we want to skip to right action and just say, I want to know what to do in my relationship. I want to know what to do in regard to my work. I, I want to know what to do in regard to social justice. I want to know, you know, whatever it is that I want to know. I want to understand, and then I want to do that next. That's very pragmatic, and it's very American. And it's like, what do we do? And let's do it. But in order to cultivate a mind that has, a, has the um, understanding, the wisdom um, the capacity to know how to engage, there has to be a certain cultivation that takes place. And Buddhism realized this from the very beginning. And so today we're doing a one-day sit, and we are engaging in all of these different practices that if you looked at them from the outside, they might seem a little strange. I mean, is it just about crowd control so we can get everybody in the building? Is it just about so that we don't bother each other and we had a good shot at sitting so that we don't get too disturbed? Or is there something more going on here? Everything that we're doing in regard to this practice has to do with supporting the Eightfold Noble Path. These are all practices that arise together that allow us to be able to be in a place where we might have a good shot of letting go the thing that we are attached to. Of letting go of the things that we are clinging to. They're designed to let us move in that way. And that's why we have these rituals. That's why we have this practice. This practice was designed around that. This is a cultivation practice. And we are cultivating by coming together and engaging with this, engaging in this practice with each other so that we can see. We could do so many different things today. But I would like to see, and I think you would like to see what it is that I should do next when the moment arises. What happens when that thing happens at work? What happens when this is said in my relationship? How should I respond? Many times I don't know. And so every night I go to sleep. And when I go to sleep, I set it up. It's almost as though our body knows inherently how this works, but we forget. I want to be told, this is what I should do in black and white, and then I do it next. But there is a certain cultivation that allows it to spring forward where I realize what to do next. 
And so when I go to bed at night, my body knows inherently, because I've done this tens of thousands of times, I've gone to bed and gone to sleep. And when I lie down, what I don't do is say, okay, I'm going to fall asleep and I'm going to summon my mental energy and I'm going to go one, two, three, sleep. No, it seems counterintuitive because we all understand how sleep works. Sleep is not something that I summon. I don't will, okay, now I am going to sleep. I actually cultivate some sort of an environment and then I just let it unfold. I know that maybe um, I need to turn the music off if I'm going to sleep, or I need to turn the light off if I'm going to sleep. I need to have a comfortable place to lie down. I need to have comfortable clothing. It's probably good not to drink three or four glasses of water. It is something that happens where I decide that I am going to cultivate an environment to let something unfold. But I don't summon it. I create the situation where then sleep can manifest and appear. And so many times when I am going around trying to solve the problems of Michael McCord on a daily basis, I um, have to take my best stab at it because I haven't necessarily cultivated the understanding or the thing that arose in that situation wasn't necessarily what I needed. I'm in a conversation with someone, it's starting to go south. I'm not exactly sure what to say to, to say to save the situation, and I'm just taking my, my best stab at it in real time. That is the way that life works. Okay, I'm taking my best stab at it. But what we're doing in our practice is setting ourselves up so that we might have a little bit better shot at hearing that person the next time that we see them. So I might understand where I'm coming from, what my fears are, what my bias is, getting better in touch with my internal narrative so that I can understand the ears that I am actually filtering that other person with. This is what we're doing on a daily basis. We're setting up our bedroom so that sleep can manifest, so that right view can actually come forward, so that we can actually see the action that maybe we should take. And we are cultivating this practice today by having things like right concentration and right mindfulness. And when we do Oriyoki, it is a practice that has six minutes of eating and a whole lot of other stuff. And you would think that if you were pragmatic, you would sit down, you would get a bowl, you would put food in it, and you would start eating. But as a model for how we engage the Eightfold Path, the practices in the temple show us how to be with the Eightfold Path so that we can cultivate these things that we want to come forward. And so we sit down and we have our Oriyoki wrapped up in a certain way, and we bring it forward at a certain time. And we unfold it in a certain way. And we place our bowls out in a certain way. And then we have to stare at our bowls. They're empty. I'm hungry. Now I'm more hungry because I'm looking at empty bowls. But there's still no food in those bowls. And then people come along and they put food in the bowls. And there's a very specific rituals for holding the bowl, receiving the food. And then I still don't get to eat. I have to look at my food. And we have to chant. I'm sitting there thinking about my food. And I'm hungry but we're still not eating. And there is a certain concentration, a certain mindfulness. There is a certain gratitude. There's a certain patience. There's all these sorts of um, little things that are happening that I'm cultivating, learning to be with and not just impatiently react. It's helping me with a certain type of seeing. Right view can't be summoned, it happens. And this slows it down. The monastery, the temple slows it down so that we have a shot. Because many times in our daily life, it's just happening too fast. Life is happening too fast. You're on the bus, you're in the car, you're at work, you're on the phone, you're in your living quarters. Stuff is just happening. And 
I don't know how quickly I can be mindful and really be with these things, how well I can really concentrate and meet them in the moment. It's just happening too fast. So we slow it down in the monastery. And we say, okay, let's just be with yourself for a little bit. Let's stare at a wall. And let's not put anything on that wall. Let's just let let it be your movie on that wall. All that narrative that's happening in your head. Not that you summon it, but just that you sit there and you notice that your knee itches and you're thinking about that thing that person said at work last week. And then you realize that you're thinking about lunch and then whatever and whatever and whatever. And you're just being with, you know, and then that thing from childhood. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, my back. You're there learning how to be with yourself in your acceptance practice. And we've slowed it all down. It's so much harder when you're on the bus or when you're in something at home and it's just happening real time. We've slowed it down and it's just the internal experience and the external experience of just being with this body in this mind in this moment. Because when we are doing things and we don't actually cultivate a way to understand what's going on, we can get overwhelmed. And when we get overwhelmed, we start to feel a little bit hopeless. And then we don't really care or engage as much. It's, it's like the analogy of the trash in the street. If you're in a, um, they've done plenty of studies on this, where you go into a neighborhood and there's trash everywhere. If there's trash everywhere, the chance that somebody coming down the street will drop trash increases. It just does. There's already trash. There's already, it, it's already a mess. What does it matter if this, this gets dropped? And the, and the more the things are picked up, the less likely that somebody is going to go and drop trash in the street. And this overwhelm, when it happens, the chance that we're going to meet the next moment is very, very similar. It starts to decrease. So we're slowing it down. We're engaging things that are based on the Eightfold Path so that we can see. And when we start to see we start to understand how to respond, how to be with ourself, to be with the other people that are around us. And we might not know how to act. And in daily life, we just have to take our best stab at it. I remember a student one time asking this at Tassajara, and they, um, in the middle of the practice period, had come to realize the most everything, uh, at least as they were concerned, that was in their head that was coming up was um, pretty much um, garbage. They were like, whatever's coming up for me, I realized that I'm just deluded. I am working um, basically from a completely selfish standpoint. Um, This is about me. This is a self-help program for me. I really don't care about the rest of you all. And um, that's really awful. Um, But um, how on earth can I take my next step forward? Because I realize I'm just highly deluded and incredibly selfish. And um, this is causing me suffering, but that's where I'm at. So how can I even trust this mind in order to take the next step? Basically, a place of complete overwhelm, too much seeing, if you will. But, you know, I loved the answer. It was Reb Anderson who was um, leading the practice period. And he said, take your next step with confidence. Because that's all you can do. You take your best step forward. You do your best in the moment. The Eightfold Path is not designed as a way to cause stagnation for the individual to be bound up with too much seeing and realizing that I don't see clearly. None of us see clearly. It's a matter of how much we can see somewhat clear. And it is being patient with ourselves, the way that we were patient with Oriyoki and receiving our food. And we let it unfold. And we realize that we are not going to make the next perfect step. But this entire practice is cultivating something inside so that we have a view that lets us see. So that then we know how to engage with ourselves and with other people. In the monastery, we have a thing called the Shingi. And the Shingi um, is basically the um, shared agreements we have for how that we are going to interact with each other. 
And they're all based around supporting the Eightfold Path. How that we interact with each other, how we speak. We have a thing in there about right speech and how it is that we speak to and about each other. We have a thing in there um, about right mindfulness and how it is that we are, how it is that we interact when we're in the kitchen, what we do with our dishes, and the announcement that was made um, during the announcements about what it is that we need to do when we're in the kitchen with our dishes. There's all these things that are bringing us back to um, this body in this mind in this moment. And these are things that support right view or the prajna, the insight that penetrates situations. And things still might be cloudy. And we're not asked to worry about that because we want to know. And so they have this thing in Zen that dates way back, especially in, in Chinese um, Chan Buddhism called koans. And I love koans because they really, really, really kind of drive home this point where the student comes and says, you know, I really want to know, tell me the answer right now. But the teacher knows that the student hasn't cultivated, the student hasn't been engaging in these practices for years and in cultivating this um, way of engaging and seeing and being with the universe. And so these koans typically are something that there isn't like, um, you know, the crossword puzzle where you can turn the page and you can see all the answers and you're like, oh, that's the answer. There's no, there's no book like that that gives you a definitive answer to any of our koans. There's some things that people real that have given us their awarenesses that have taken place on these koans, but everyone who engages it, there is still a new destination and the destination wasn't the point anyway. It was cultivating being in the area that um, Da Vinci called smoke. Um, Leonardo da Vinci was known as one of the great thinkers of, of all time in, in arts and sciences and in so many different things. And he said the area that individuals tended to um, um, overlook in regard to genius was the area of learning called smoke. Uh, Esfumato in the old Italian was what he wrote. And it's just like, this is what people try to skip over is Esfumato, the, the, the smoke area of learning. The smoke area of learning is when you just start to learn something and you know a little bit about it where it's enough to be dangerous, but you're still really unclear about all of it. And that area is an area that we tend to uh, associate with confusion, um, where it's like, um, I really don't know what's going on. And in that place where the mind is, if you will, a beginner's mind, um, it is a place where a lot can happen. A lot is possible. And that is the place that most of us, including me, certainly get really uncomfortable. and want to get to a place where I'm an expert and I know, I know. Okay. What's the answer to the koan? The koan really embraces that smoke area of learning where we start to chew on it. You chew on a koan. You know, I start with that first koan of moo and you have people that are rocking back and forth on their on their cushions in the in the Japanese monastery, going moo. They've kind of like they've already they've already studied the koan enough that they've distilled it down to just that one word, and then that one word elicits like the whole you know um, generation of the feeling of that koan, and then they're 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 there chewing on moo, if you will. And um, this is something in our training that allows us to learn to be with the uncertainty of life. The, the not knowing. It doesn't mean that we don't take action. Sometimes in life, we have to take action. We have to respond and we have to take our best stab at it. But if we get overly impatient, then we get into this reactionary mode where we're just, just reacting. And we're, it's, like, it's like, okay, I feel that I need to do something. If I feel that I need to do something, and if that is the basis for doing something, then chances are I'm going to be in reactionary mode. Should I be doing something or should I not be doing something? Can I actually chew on this if I need to? Or if I, am I just too overwhelmed with the need to act that I'm just like, look, I just want to know the end of the koan. I want to take action. I want to do it right now. 
This is training for being a human being engaging in the world. A human being that can go to a social justice rally and still keep a clear head in the midst of all of the energy. A person that can engage with environmental activism without being in a place where they're not paying attention to new data or a differing view or take on a tone that is so harsh and is so desperate that all you can do is preach to the choir and no one can hear you unless they totally agree with you. We're finding ways to engage on the planet so that we can actually be with those who maybe don't agree with us. So that maybe we can actually hear the individuals who we don't agree with. If we aren't in a state of overwhelm, if we have cultivated a way of being with what's going on, we might have a lot better shot at meeting that person, at hearing that thing, at finding that tone, tone, that voice, that voice that is stripped of all the desperation and bias and is actually just trying to connect. We have these rituals in our monastery that help us hone that, that help us hone seeing what it is that we are afraid of, that help us hone what it is that distracts us and pulls us away, that helps us hone seeing what our fears are. You could look at one of our rituals and you could say, wow, that's a lot of doing and thinking. Is it really necessary? I could just plop down on my cushion and start sitting. All of that ritual. But everybody knows what it's like to read a book and be two or three pages into reading that book and then not even know what you read. Because you weren't at your book. You had all that busyness from the day of the thing that happened at work and talking to customer service and that thing that happened at home and all the rest of it. And you got home and you sat down and you started reading your book and you were two pages into it. And you're like, I don't know what I read because I'm not at my book. And so you and a friend decide that you're going to put together a mindfulness club. And you say that before I go and I read my book, it's going to be in the corner of the room. It's going to be underneath that glass case from grandma. It's going to have that light over it. And when I open my door, I'm going to close it to my room. And I'm going to give thanks that I have a roof over my head because some people don't. And then I'm going to put my hands in my hara. And I'm going to take a deep breath. And I'm going to bring myself back to my body. And I'm going to do a brief body scan. And then I'm going to go over to my book. And I'm going to do a, a, a bow to my book. And I'm going to give thanks to the person who taught me how to read. And I'm going to pick up that glass case, always with two hands, and I'm going to put it always to the left. And then I'm going to touch the cover of that book, and I'm going to think about the author and how they gave three years of their life to make this possible. And then I'm going to pick it up and touch it to my head. I'm going to think of all the people that made it possible for me to even have that book, all the way down to the person that delivered it to my house yesterday. And then I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to feel the paper and the pulp, and I'm going to look at the font. I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to inhale and exhale. And then I'm going to read the first sentence. And you and your friend might see the reason for doing that ritual because you know what it's like to go to your book and not be at your book. And it, it, it then takes on a holiness for you because it is something that inherently helps you be connected with what's really happening right there in front of you. But if somebody saw you do that ritual from the corner of your room, they might think you were a little obsessive compulsive. You could have just picked up that book. That's what we're doing here. We have these rituals that people have, have, have honed over centuries that they've, they've, they've found help them be with the thing that's happening, that give them a good shot at unfolding a view that lets them see what's happening. And from that view, understanding how to go forward with an action how to go forward with themselves inside, how to go forward with being a person on this planet. There was an album in the um, early 90s, and I love the title of this album. It's by a, a band named Mazzy Star. 
And the, the album was entitled, So Tonight That I Might See. And I always wondered, I'm like, so you're doing something. We don't get to know what it is that you're doing. You're doing something, but then you're setting up a situation so that tonight you might see. So, that, so tonight that I might see. We have a one-day sit, and we ate orioki and we sat zazen, so that tomorrow I might see, so that I might actually start cultivating how to be. I asked my teacher, Paul Haller, one time what I was doing at Tassajara. I had been there for several years, and he said, honing your gut. Just learning how to be with me and learning how to be with what's happening and learning how to see so that I might leave Tassajara and go back out into the world and know how to engage people a little bit, to know where to put my energy. We need to let ourselves have the process of unfolding without being too impatient about it, to realize that this one mystery, this koan of being a person on the planet is something that's going to unfold for the rest of our lives. And to not be too worried about skipping through the part where it is that we're a beginner or where it is that we feel we don't know. To let those times when we feel a little confused about what to do, to be teachers and to bear our burden nobly, as they say. To be able to sit and be with being a human being that is suffering, knowing that right now I'm not going to think my way out of it. And then not to make things worse by beating myself up over the fact that I haven't figured it out yet. But to be spacious with myself and learn how to be spacious with myself. There was a quote from, um, there was a quote from um, um, Rilke um, that I love. Um, the Swiss um, writer and poet from the late 19th, early 20th century about the desire to not be um, uncomfortable, to not be um, um, in a place of not knowing what to do, to be suffering and to just want it to end, but not looking at the fact that maybe it was necessary. And this is, this is the quote, and I try to remember this all the time when I feel a little bit stuck and I just want to understand and I want to know and I want to have the solution. I want somebody to give me the answer at the back of the book. And this is from Rilke. Why should you want to exclude from your life all unsettling, all pain, all depression of spirit when you don't know what work it is these states are performing within you? Why do you want to persecute yourself with the question of where it all comes from and where it is leading? You well know you are in a period of transition and want nothing more than to be transformed. If there is something ailing in the way that you go about things, then remember that sickness is the means by which an organism rids itself of something foreign to it. All one has to do is help it to be ill, to have its whole illness and let it break out for that is how it mends itself. There are a lot of little things in our practice that can be uncomfortable. And there can be a lot of desire to know where things are going to end. And I invite you that when you want to know an answer to think of spaciousness. To think of spaciousness. To think of, hmm. This answer might be bigger than this moment. And I might plague myself if I think I should have the answer right now. And it does not preclude me from taking my next step forward with full confidence. I'm doing my best as a human being on this planet. And so we invite people to come for one day sits, to do shishins, to go to Tassajara, and not to do these things because it's an esoteric hobby on the weekend, but because we want this planet to be full of individuals who know how to engage with this planet so that I can learn how to be a person that when I leave this talk, the next person I run into, I have a little bit better chance of hearing them. A little bit better chance of finding the voice that can actually be heard 
by a circle that's broader than just the people who currently agree with me. To be someone that is spacious and not forced nice. We all know what it's like to be forced nice, where your emotional reservoir is already full, but you're a human being and you know that to be civil, you need to be nice to the person next to you, but it's really bothering you if they are not perfect. Because you are already in an emotional, somewhat overwhelmed state. This is expanding the internal emotional reservoir that allows us to be able to have a little extra for the person next to us so that we can be spacious, instinctively, naturally, responsively, and not necessarily just have to force it. And we all know what it's like to be around someone who naturally has space for us. How beautiful that is when someone is just that individual that we know we can be creative, we can make a mistake, we can say the wrong thing, and there's just plenty of space for it. We learn better. We hear better. We sleep better. Can I be that person for other people? Can I show up and be spacious for other people's imperfections? This practice allows me a much better shot at that like falling asleep, I'm setting up the situation through engaging a practice that is inherent and interwoven with the Eightfold Path so that I might be able to set up a situation where I can meet that next moment. I can be there for the next person. It's too vast to summon. I just set up my apartment and I do all the things and I lie down and then I go to sleep. So tonight that I might see, to be settled with myself first, to let the storm on the lake calm down, to let the mirror on the surface of the lake spring back clarity so that I might understand how to react, how to act, how to meet, so that I may engage in social justice with a voice that doesn't just preach to the choir, so that I can hear those who don't think like I do. So that those who don't think like I do can tell that I can hear them. So that I can find my voice, a voice that can be heard because it is stripped of all the internal narrative and bias and opens its arms to the world without being forced. So that I can have a grounding that allows a hearing that isn't overly distressed when I hear things I disagree with, such that those speaking feel heard, and that I can love and not just love the choir. And so that those who disagree with me can feel loved, and I can be a host to them as well with open arms and spaciousness for their shortcomings. The Bodhisattva vow is outward, willing and wanting to be there for the whole world, regardless of one's virtue that I'm engaging with not because they've earned merit, but because of our shared humanity that I respect, that we respect. This is the cultivation of Buddhism and our Soto Zen path so that we can truly show up for the world. Thank you, Michael. So we'll now open to uh, questions or comments. One of the things we downloaded at City Center was the um, the, um, the the soundtrack to Jeopardy. So whenever we got to a um, a part where there was silence, you know, we could just play that for a little bit. We we didn't do it in our in our most formal of settings, but we we use it here and there. So um, yeah, well, the, the the silence can um, be beautiful as well. I have a question. Yes, Marco. So you talked about, you used the word knowing. And I wanted to um, ask you to talk about the, to say something about knowing from the, the different kinds of knowing. So sometimes when we say knowing, we mean one thing, and then other times we mean another thing. So it can be very tricky business in the practice of Zen, this knowing business. So uh, what does it feel like, especially you also brought up the, the idea that Webb had said of stepping forward with confidence. So how does 
knowing or not knowing the intimacy of not knowing relate to this stepping forward with confidence? What's the confidence? Yeah. Thank you, Marco. Um, yeah. So I think when you, when you boil it down to like the moment that the, the individual is in, um, if there's an understanding that my, my vision isn't perfect and that it's kind of like a funhouse mirror, then knowing is not a destination that I have arrived at. Um, knowing is something that um, I am moving toward um, that is multifaceted and I know is littered with all sorts of imperfections. Um, and I also know that there is not a need for me in the universe to have to apologize for that. Um, there's a certain desperation um, that can arise if I feel that I need to understand things with such perfect clarity that I've seen through um, the nature of all things and I've turned into a pure beam of light. Um, th this is not where, where we, we engage. It's, um, it, it's, it's, the, un, it's the, um, the, the veil that we live um, behind and the understanding that we are all Buddhas and that we all just have one second of, of existence, one second of consciousness, millions and billions of things have to come together and coalesce that point toward the fact that we are already very much aligned with the universe, but there is a lack of seeing, there's a lack of being in touch with that. And so the knowing is a slow, I guess you would say unveiling um, of that shroud of that veil. Um, and knowing, understanding that, um, that my lack of seeing is inherent in every single moment. Um, someone said once that um, if I saw and understood everything with the mind that I have right now, instantly, like someone shining like a giant light into an unilluminated Grand Canyon, that the psychic um, effect would just kill me. You know, it's just like, way too much seeing, way too much knowing. The vastness of what there is to know is infinite. And I think that um, sometimes when I say I know something, I know what to do. To tomorrow I am going to go and I'm going to join this protest downtown. I know that's the right thing to do. And I know that this protest is on the right side of history. Well, that is fraught with all sorts of misunderstandings. <laughs> I'm taking my best stab at something that has, I pretty much feel is moving in the right direction of things, probably in itself could be honed a million different ways to make it more perfect. Um, and, and my motivations for doing it are probably mixed with some um, um, selfishness, um, with some des desperation, with some impatience, um, with some altruism. There, there's some all, all sorts of things are mixed in there. But yet I know, um, I have some sense of knowing that that's a good thing for me to do tomorrow. And so I think that um, viewing knowing is not a destination, but something that is a slow unveiling um, points toward many different ways to know and many different stages of knowing. Thank you. It's like your cultivation of your gut. <laughs> just so happens that there's a protest today downtown the capital for voting rights culmination of a march by the Reverend William Barber and yet we're here yeah. Michael yeah yeah and hopefully there will be another situation that today's practice in the future will somehow or another influence. And um, I think that um, somewhere on this planet, there has to be a place, you know, like you have a practice place for violinists, you have a practice place for people to play basketball, you have a practice place for whatever engagement it is that you want to do. And if you want to learn how to, um, you know, engage in ballet, um, you set up a, a place that allows you to slow it down, to hone the forms, and to figure out what to do. If everything was just on the stage, the ballet would never take place. And so a protest is something that is filled with energy and emotion 
And it's so easy to get swept up in. And this is our practice place for being a human being that lives and engages in this world where we can slow things down and see um, through learning with Sangha and being with each other. There will be somebody today somewhere that has something that happens at Austin Zen Center that won't be perfect and they will notice it and think that that person probably should have done it differently. That will happen somewhere today um, before you leave. And um, all these things are teachers. We've slowed it down. The environment there is pretty safe. And um, there's a lot of space to then go and sit with whatever it is that happened or whatever it is that um, uh, was understood. It's our practice place for, we call it our practice. It's our practice place for being at something like a voting rights rally. That is not necessarily the easiest place to be and keep yourself centered sometimes. And you can get very swept up in things. Um, and then go home after something like that and, and maybe even just be disturbed. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been engaged in, in, in a social cause and then gone home and had so much energy that you just couldn't focus, or maybe you even reacted in a way that was just quite unmindful um, because it was just like, how do I absorb all this energy and where do I put it? Um, these sorts of practices allow us um, a way to um, know how it is to come down or to engage. Um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has all sorts of ways. He, he wrote a book called The Miracle of Mindfulness. Um, and it was basically a, a series of letters to his brother talking to him about how to um, engage in a, um, um, a lay life outside the monastery and use all the practices of the monastery. Um, these are these these are our practices that we're engaging in today. Um, how to be a human being in this world? I see a hand. Yes, Michael. Thank you so much for your talk. So so engaging and and so fitting to this this moment for us in the retreat, but this moment in time. What comes up for me, I think, in the context of how you describe what you were talking about a few minutes ago with uh, knowing and understanding, I, I, there's another piece that, that fits in there for me, which is trusting to some degree, um, trusting the discomfort that there is a role and a purpose for that, that it's, that it's leading me somewhere good. and trusting also in the sense of kind of relaxing, relaxing about being progressively less concerned about being right or about doing the right thing in the moment as if there's some such thing. Um, and, and I think that, I think that it is, as you say, a practice of, of um, cultivation for us. So it's not so much, I'm, we're, we're not, uh, and you mentioned crosswords. I think it's easy to get caught up in connecting the dots or trying to connect the dots. Because I sit here today, then tomorrow that dot will be there. Um, you know, so it, it's more, it, it's, it's less about, I mean, it's intentional, but it's less about planning and scheming and saying, because I, you don't work backwards, because I want to accomplish this, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, that also relates to the, the confidence, the stepping forward with confidence, that you trust that what we are doing here will help. And even as we take refuge in this practice, we don't see refuge as a way to hide out or avoid um, that, that discomfort. Am I doing enough in the world? Am I taking action? Am I just hiding? Well, there's discomfort. If, if you don't like the discomfort of not knowing, then the temptation is going to be to, to, to hide or to throw, you know, throw guilt upon yourself. And I think maybe if I've learned something 
over the course of my practice. It's it's to do a little bit more welcoming of those things that those, those that guilt or the uncertainty or the aversion to not knowing, and to look for the place where I can step forward with confidence, even as I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't understand what I'm doing, but I know that in a moment, like it, it becomes, as you say, I think more likely, I have a better shot at knowing in a given moment that this is this, I'm doing this and that's okay. So I, I, I guess there's not a question in that, but I wanted to put out that piece that uh, you don't have to understand, but you can still, I think, trust and welcome more and more um, that what I'm, what you're doing now with the practice is, will be, is wholesome, that, that, that it will take you um, in a good place, even if you don't have a map. Thank you. I think there's a word that we don't use often in our practice, but it's it's so woven into it that we almost forget because we talk about this being a warm hand to warm hand practice from teacher to student. And there is a certain element of faith, if you will. And that faith comes from, I think, seeing how the fruits of this practice have manifested in other people's lives. And seeing, you know, I can remember going to a lecture with my teacher, Paul Haller, um, right when I was a new student, and um, he had given this beautiful lecture. And after the lecture, um, there were two or three people that were just really kind of being, I guess you'd say a little bit rude and kind of like arguing with him and being kind of petty. And I was sitting there kind of feeling defensive of my teacher. Um, and um, he met them with such graciousness um, and um and it didn't seem to be forced. It just seemed to be where he, where he was. And I can remember feeling like that is a practice I want to cultivate. I want to be able to meet people like that. And I think that um, a piece of, a piece of the, um, uh, of engaging in this practice is, is faith that um, I don't know how the fruits of this practice might manifest for me. You know, uh, I might I might want to create a plan, a project plan where it's like, I'll start here. I'm a person has a problem with anger. I'll do Zen and then I'll be less angry. You know, th th that's very natural as far as like taking Zen and trying to make it a self-help program. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Um, well, fortunately, it doesn't. But, uh, you know, if if I'm writing a project plan with a certain mind and body and spirit, then I've already sabotaged the plan because I only have the certain wisdom to write that plan from the mind and body and spirit at the beginning of the plan. <laughs> I have to engage in something that's bigger than me that I don't understand that can then unfold as I engage in it. <laughs> because if I wrote the project plan at the very beginning, then I've sabotaged it. So you have to have some measure of faith by having this warm hand to warm hand experience with how it has manifested in other people's lives and also realizing that the fruits of the practice are going to manifest in ways that you can't really predict. For each person, it will be different. And how those things um, are connected way deep down in the ways of our millions and billions of little tiny karmic roots from our past and our neurobiology and whatever, we have no clue. It's so infinite. So we are given this practice that we just engage in it. And then we see how it spills out into our lives. But um, you know, I, I really appreciate the, the the comment and question because I think that um, the very engaging in the practice um, is so infinite that um, we try to let most of it be uh, a somatic practice, a body practice, um, a, a practice of um, noticing um, how we hold tension in our body, know how, knowing how we tend to expand or contract, and um, and then being with. Um, you know, our teacher, um, being with the, the people that are um, modeling the practice and learning from each other. Um, 
yeah, this is um, this is a, a a book with no end. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you very much for sharing your practice and your teaching with us on this day that we are uh, uh, gathered together for retreat. I don't know if we'll be able to do this again anytime soon, given that you know Austin has just gone into stage five, uh, unfortunately. Um, so today, I just I want to say we're not going to have the breakout rooms, but I want to encourage anyone who is online and the people who are in the retreat uh, may have already done this, but to please um, give Donna to our visiting teacher and to our temple. I think Michael's uh, your your talk is a uh, a very lovely way of talking about what it is that we're doing. <laughs> what it is we're cultivating here. So um, please join us in uh, the first paramita of uh, generosity. So uh, I think that's all that we're going to do today from uh, streaming live from the Zendo. And Michael, please come visit us when uh, when things are, are safe to do, when it's safe to do that. It would be lovely to actually host you in person again. Great to be there. It's lovely to, to see all of you. And I can't wait to be back to Austin Sun Center. Please take care of yourselves and have a great sit today. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. <laughs>